I don't know about you, but I'm ready to charge a wall or something. I don't know. I need to, I need to hit something. That gets me going. All right. Well, I'm really glad you're here today with us. We are looking at the promise. At Christmas, we celebrate the fulfillment of a promise. It actually uh, turns out to be a promise that was made thousands of years before it was filled. God operates on a, on a huge time scale. And we're going to trace that promise in a few moments through the scriptures. You see it in the very first couple chapters. But before that, I want to go back to our theme verse. Our, our theme for this series, we're looking at um, what Jesus told us to do, what he gave us to build our lives on. And he tacked this verse onto the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of his most famous passages, probably the most famous sermon he ever delivered, Matthew 7, 24. It says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What Jesus is saying, and we've been looking at this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but this is what he's saying. The core issue for our stability and right kind of success in life is this. I place my confidence in the Bible as God's word and God's guide for my living? Am I going to build my life on what he said, on the principles and the ideas that he gave us in Scripture, the truth that he laid out? Ideas matter, principles matter, because they become seeds. As ideas and principles plant themselves in our minds, they become seeds that grow either into things of beauty, things that bear fruit, or weeds that don't, and things that poison us and ruin the life that God really wants us to experience. Many of the choices we make, and I've talked about this a couple times, I've mentioned this a couple times, many of the choices that we make based on the principles and the ideas that we buy into, are 15 to 20 year decisions. In other words, an idea or principle plants itself in our mind, we, we decide to live by it, and we're going to see the fruit in 15 or 20 years. Parenting's like that. You decide how you're going to approach parenting your child. You buy into principles. You operate in a, in a, with a certain understanding, a fund of of ideas and principles that you buy into, and 15, 20 years, you're going to find out how, how solid they were. So we desperately need perspective beyond ourselves. We need help to make these choices. We need somebody who can see the big picture. And the promise that we're looking at today, the promise that was made in the prophecies about Jesus Christ clues us into the fact that the Bible is the only credible source for this kind of perspective. The Christmas story is one way to verify that the Bible is trustworthy, that God has given us the principles to build on, like Jesus said, the foundation to live on for our lives and to guide us in the best way to live. I want to read the story and then I want to show you how that's, that's the case. Matthew 1, 18-25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His, Mary, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. 
Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the promise through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a quote from Isaiah 7.14, at least 700 years before Jesus' birth. We're going to look at some other prophecies that were given 1,400 years or so earlier. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and Mary, and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. It's amazing what God's done here, and we're going to trace it through history. If you're investigating Christianity, if you're digging into whether or not it's true, whether Jesus is who he said he was. Really good book to read is called Christianity, A Faith That Makes Sense by Dennis McCallum. M, little c, big C-A-L-L-U-M. But in this book, he shows how fulfilled prophecy is God's chosen method of self-authentication. He authenticates himself, in other words, in the way that only he could. And it proves that who, who he is. It, it, it at least doesn't prove like scientifically, but it gives us evidence that we can weigh and decide whether or not it's true. Isaiah 41, 21 through 23, I don't have it on the screen. You might want to write it down. But this is where God actually explains through the prophet Isaiah that this is his method. This is the method that you can verify the validity of prophecy and truth is you make a prediction. There are predictions that only God could make that we can verify, use to verify whether or not the Bible is real and whether or not God is real himself. The way we know God is real and the Bible is his word is that the promises and predictions that were made well in advance prove that authenticity and character. He always comes through. He, he made the promise that we're celebrating thousands of years ago, and he, and he came through. McCallum, in this book, he points out uh, that to guarantee authenticity, you need two things. First of all, you need predictions that are in writing. They have to be in writing. You can't just say that someone may, you know, I mean, thousand years ago. We wouldn't remember if somebody said that for sure or not, you know, so... They have to be in writing, and there must be a reliable way to date the prediction. The second one is, the prediction has to be detailed enough so that coincidence can't explain it. Only God can predict the future in this kind of way, spanning hundreds of years between the prediction and its fulfillment, actually thousands. And in Jesus Christ, you see the fulfillment of at least four dozen prophecies 
300 specific details about who the Messiah, the Son of God, would be that would verify his identity, identity, sort of like a fingerprint. In that book, The Case for Christmas, if you're investigating Christianity, pick one up, whether you're a first-time guest or not. Pick one up because there's a chapter, there's a section in there on the fingerprint evidence of who Jesus is, how you use these prophecies to match and verify his identity. Four dozen prophecies, 300, could you scroll back down, please? Uh, 400 prophecies, three, 300 different details. Jesus Christ fulfilled all of these. All of these were really related to the Messiah. The chances of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies is one in 100 million billion. That means nothing to me. I'm horrible at math. I know it means one with a lot of zeros. Okay, here's, here's what it means. This might give you a picture. I don't know why they always use the state of Texas for stuff like this, but they use the state of Texas. Because I know one thing about the state of Texas, you can cram everybody in the world in the state of Texas if they just stood next to each other. That, that's hard to believe, isn't it? That's a big place. Um, in this instance, if you took silver dollars and you covered the state of Texas with 100 million billion silver dollars, they would be two feet deep. If you marked one of those silver dollars and blindfolded a person and then told them to go find it, go pick one of those silver dollars covering the state of Texas two feet deep, they pick one of those silver dollars, that's the chances, that's the same odds that one person would fulfill just eight of those prophecies. Amazing. It's an incredible amount of evidence that Jesus is really who he said he, he is. I've read, I've read books and stories of people who verify these things. I read uh, a while back, I read about a Jewish man who used the portrait of the prophecies to verify the identity of Christ. He was actually probably, I don't, I don't remember, but I think he was trying to disprove it. But in the process came to Christ. That's happened over and over again. Because there is solid evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. And you can, you can trace it. What I'd like to do before we continue is um, trace the promise that we're talking about today. You know, anticipation and waiting are, are a big part of Christmas celebrations, uh, especially for kids. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember I couldn't wait for Christmas morning. I was anticipating, anticipating, and I, I snuck around and looked at my presents under the tree beforehand. And you know, you know how I thought I got away with it. My mom never said anything, but there's no way I did. You know, it was a poor cover-up job. I can tell you that, but this is, this is the way I'm wired. I, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait. Got to do it. So um, even though I snuck a peek, I couldn't play with them until Christmas. That was just as much torture as not, not knowing what they were. I just wanted to make sure my mom got the memo about what I wanted, and then it was covered, and then I had to wait longer. But waiting is a big part of Christmas. So, so you're getting a picture of me, aren't you? This is, this is me, the spoiled, rotten kid that I was. And maybe still am, I don't know. You could ask my wife. Um, this waiting is appropriate for Christmas. This, this, is, this is appropriate because 
God's people, Israel, spent a great deal of time waiting for the first Christmas. I mean, a tremendous amount of time. They tracked the promise of God through the prophecies of the Old Testament over thousands of years. And I'm going to take five minutes or so to kind of take a shallow glimpse at where the promise shows up in the prophecies to try to get a sense of something that began over 4,000 years ago. But that's what we're going to do. Just give us, give us a sense. And the main reason I'm doing it, or, or one thing that you could do, is take that outline, that handout, and track it yourself. Read through and try to put it together based on what we're talking about this morning. First promise was sometime after the beginning of time. When man chose to rebel against God, and that rebellion, that sin, cut us off from knowing Him personally. It cut us off from a relationship with Him. When that happened, the, the man and the woman were hiding from God. He came to them, and God immediately alluded to His plan to restore mankind's relationship with Himself. He said the seed or offspring of a woman would crush the enemy, Satan. He was talking to the serpent who, Satan, and he alluded to this, that's the first place, Genesis 3.15, that's the first place you see the promise. Sometime after the beginning of time. That is the first time the promise was needed. First time we needed it, and he gave it. 1980 B.C., Abraham is born, and this is, uh, Abraham is the person through whom God is going to uh, grow up the uh, people of Israel. This is going to be, uh, his, God's people are going to be the offspring of Abraham. And he tells Abraham that he's going to have a, a son whose descendant would bless the world. Sort of a general reference to this offspring of Abraham who would be a blessing to the entire world. 1400 B.C. in Deuteronomy, God worked spectacular things through Moses. I mean, people were amazed at what God did through the prophet Moses. And the Israelites began to ask, is God ever going to do that again? Is he ever going to deal with Israel the way he dealt with Israel through the prophet Moses? His leadership was amazing, and God did amazing. Is that ever going to happen again? And the answer came at a king was going to come who would be like that, who would be the same. Getting a little more specific there, there's going to be a king. And then in 1000 BC, God refused to allow David, the second king of Israel, to build a temple to himself. Uh, he told him his son could build it, but not him. There were some reasons for that. But he gave the promise again when David requested that God allow him to build the temple. A son of David would sit on the throne forever. In 650 B.C., you see that stated. Isaiah describes the child that's going to be born, Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's that's where this king is going to reign. His reign is going to be established at the end of history, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
500 B.C., Daniel 7.14. He talks of a specially appointed deliverer. Zechariah 6.13 points to a kingly deliverer. That's in 500 B.C. There's 500 years of silence. God speaks through no prophets or any other means during this time, the period of silence. And then God comes through with his promise. We just read uh, about that in the Christmas story. That's what the Christmas story is all about. Christmas is proof that God always keeps his promise. So that's what we're celebrating. Well over 2,000 years after he first made the promise, the promise is kept. You see the promise in Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God, God is with us. Fulfillment is found in Luke 1, and the passage we read earlier. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. This God's the angel speaking to Mary. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father. The people of Israel had been waiting for this moment in history thousands of years. That, that's a long time. I had to wait a couple months for my Christmas gift. I couldn't hardly take that. That was tough. But God comes through with his promise like he does every time. Our, our Christmas celebrations are packed with anticipation and expectation. We find ourselves waiting for in life as well. We're anticipating. We're expecting. We're wondering how things are going to turn out. We find ourselves waiting for explanations of unanswered questions and things in our life that don't make sense and we can't add them up. We long for things to be restored. We, we are longing and waiting for restoration. Hurts to be healed a relationship to be restored or repaired. We, we find ourselves in the waiting room in life over and over and over again, don't we? We're in this waiting room. And we're waiting to see how something we're dealing with, a problem that we're trying to solve, a, a hurt that needs to be healed, an explanation. How, we, we're, how is this going to come together? We're not really sure. And God hardly ever seems to be in a hurry with the big things. He doesn't. He, he hardly ever seems to be really rushed. He doesn't operate on my time schedule. He doesn't operate on your time schedule. He operates on his own. And he has purposes for the way that he operates. I'd like to show you a scene from It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it seems appropriate at Christmas time. Uh, George Bailey, who's the main character in, in the movie, Jimmy Stewart, he's the owner of a, a savings and loan, a small savings and loan in his town. And his uncle Billy has misplaced $8,000, which is going to cause their small savings and loan to collapse right before his eyes. He's under a tremendous amount of pressure. He, he needs help and has no idea where the help's going to come from. He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. He himself, in this movie, is in the waiting room, like we all end up being. It looks like his business may crumble, and he may be disgraced. 
The first person he turns to is Mr. Potter, who's a mean old guy who owns most of the town. And I want you to listen to the conversation that George Bailey has with Mr. Potter. I need help. Through some sort of an accident, my company shortened their accounts. The bank examiner got there today. I've got to raise $8,000 immediately. Oh, that's what the reporters wanted to talk to you about. The reporters? Yes, they called me up from your building and loan. Oh, there's a man over there from the DA's office, too, who's looking for you. Please help me, Mr. Potter. Help me, won't you, please? Can't you see what it means to my family? I'll pay any sort of a bonus on the loan, any interest. If you still want the building and loan, I'm... George, could it possibly be there's a slight discrepancy in the books? No, sir, there's nothing wrong with the books. I've just misplaced $8,000. I can't find it anywhere. You misplaced $8,000? Yes, sir. Have you notified the police? No, sir, I, I didn't want the publicity. Harry's homecoming tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, you're going to believe that one. What have you been doing, George? Um, playing the market with the company's money? No, sir, no, sir, I haven't. Oh, is it a woman, then? Uh, you know, it's all over town that you've been giving money to Violet Bick. What? <laughs> Not that it makes any difference to me, but why do you come to me? Why don't you go to Sam Wainwright and ask him for the money? I can't get a hold of him. He's in Europe. Well, what about all your other friends? Well, they don't have that kind of money, Mr. Potter. You know that. You're the only one in town that can help me. <laughs> I've suddenly become quite important. <laughs> what kind of security would I have, George? Have you got any stocks? No, sir. Bonds? Real estate? Collateral of any kind? Well, I have some life insurance. $15,000 policy. Yes. Uh, how much is your equity in it? $500. $500? And you asked me to lend you 8000 Look at you. You used to be so cocky. You were going to go out and conquer the world. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man. What are you but a warped, frustrated young man? Miserable little clerk crawling in here on your hands and knees and begging for help. No securities, no stocks, no bonds, nothing but a miserable little $500 equity and a life insurance policy. <laughs> You're worth more dead than alive. Why don't you go to the riffraff you love so much and ask them to let you have 8000 You know why? Because they run you out of town on a rail. But I tell you what I'm going to do for you, George, since the uh, state examiner is still here. As a stockholder of the building and loan, I'm going to swear out a warrant for your arrest. Misappropriation of funds, manipulation, malfeasance. All right, George. Go ahead, go ahead. You can't hide in a little town like this. Hey, Bill, this is Potter. Father in heaven, 
not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope, right? George thinks he's at the end of his story. He's actually in the middle. But this is what God does. He, he puts us in the waiting room. We're, we're looking for explanations. We're, we have expectations. We're wondering how things are going to turn out. And God wants us to rely on him while we're in the waiting room. Many times in life, God leaves us there to accomplish what he can accomplish through delay that he cannot accomplish any other way. There are some purposes God has in this. We're not used to waiting that long. A couple months ago, I tracked a package that came from Hong Kong in a day. Maybe two days. I can't remember if it was one or two day air, but that's amazing. We, we don't have to wait in our world very often for different things. But what really matters in life, we must wait. We have to wait for it. We have to see how it's going to turn out. What is God going to do? How is he going to answer this prayer? And God masterfully uses delay for his own purpose. Here are some of God's purposes in delay. The first thing, to grow faith. God has a pattern of, he has a pattern of delaying the answer just long enough so that you're forced to exercise genuine faith. This means you have to trust him beyond your own calculations. For me, I'm always ending up in situations where I can't add up the math of how God is going to make this work out. I can't see it. I, that's what it means to walk with God. And the temptation in that moment is to try to find a way in our own strength, with our own resources, to meet the need that we're looking for God to meet. George Bailey, he prayed only after he had exhausted his own resources. His friend, Mr. Potter. Um, this is what we tend to do. This is what God uses to get our attention and bring us to him. We had a dinette set at our old house that was a constant reminder of this tendency that I have to find a way in my own resources to provide. We moved into a new townhouse, and there was a great spot for a diner, right, dinette set right by the kitchen. And um, we went out immediately and bought the dinette set in a period of time when we really probably didn't have the money to buy the dinette set, but we wanted the dinette set. We went and bought the dinette set. Interesting thing. The landlord who had just moved out of the townhouse ended up offering in a, in a week's time or so the same exact dinette set. If we'd have only waited on God's provision, he already had it figured out. That, that dinette set was a lesson to me. Wait on God, Randy. Come on. <laughs> Wait on him. Trust him. He's got it figured out. But God always puts us in situations where we can calculate and we can try to figure it out, but we can't. We can't see where it's coming from. That's one of God's purpose, to grow our faith that way. 
Another purpose of God is to purify our devotion to Him. He, he wants us to love Him and follow Him for the sake of who He is, not just what He can give us. And so we're constantly ending up in circumstances and we deal with the flow of life and we find situations where we have to trust Him alone, no one else. The Old Testament says that God is a jealous God. And when God's jealous, it sounds like a negative quality. But when God's jealous, it's for a good reason. And it actually is for our benefit. Because what that means is He will drive away all other competitors for our attention and devotion in life. He's going to arrange circumstances to drive away all the competition. Because we were made by Him, and it's right to be devoted to God alone. When someone is made by someone else, it's right for the maker to get the glory. It's right for him to get the honor. And so when God is jealous and he drives away all the other competitors, that's right. That's, that's, that's a good thing. That's loving the people that he's made. Delay is the method God uses to drive away the competition. You notice George Bailey went to Mr. Potter first, but finally turned to God. That's, that's, that's typical of what God does. A third purpose is to build endurance. The only way to grow endurance is to exercise it, to choose faith and continue to do right whether you feel like it or not. So much of the time we are waiting for the arrival of our dreams and we miss the point. God wants us to enjoy right now with Him in His presence as we walk through it with Him. He wants us to enjoy Him, to get to know Him better, to find fulfillment in Him as we keep doing what's right, waiting to see how things are going to turn out. The only way to build endurance is to exercise it, and that's one of the purposes for delay. Final purpose is to bless as many people as possible. Many times if God just flat answered our, our prayers or pulled things together, we would, we would get the blessing or the benefit, but not as many others would receive the blessing and the benefit. He waits so that the maximum number of people get the maximum benefit from the promise that's fulfilled. And his, his timing is impeccable. You can trust it. You can trust him. Randy and Crystal Paul are, are members of our congregation who are in Central Asia. And they're, they're serving God in a country where they believe that children are a sign of blessing from God. That's, that's what the Bible says. But they also believe that if you don't have children, it's a curse. It's a sign that you're cursed. Now that is completely untrue. But Randy was telling me one time, they had, they had been married 12, 13 years and they weren't able to have kids. He said, you, you watch. We'll get over there. This is when they're preparing to go over to Central Asia. He said, you watch. We'll get over there and sure enough, we're going to get pregnant. And that's exactly what happened. They're, they're the parents of two boys. They're now teenagers. God was waiting. His timing. He was putting it together. His timing. He knows what's best. He knows how to pull the thing together. He operates on a scale that we cannot imagine. 
We cannot see how it's going to come together. I'd like to take a glimpse at the end of the story, George Bailey's story, to see how it all came together. Let's uh, watch this, the end of the story. Now get this, it's from London. Oh. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash, stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000, stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> friend of mine. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. It's a great picture of what actually happens in life. George had been planting seeds of kindness. The people who were coming forward, chipping in the money to help. He'd been planting seeds of kindness broadly with all kinds of people. And just at the right time, God brings them in. He grows the fruit that everybody could enjoy. That's the way life works. But we have to plant in faith. We can't plant and immediately see the growth. We plant the seeds in faith. And we can trust God. He will come through. He will not rip us off. He, he will not... Uh, bring disgrace on us as we trust him and walk with him. Christmas means that his promises are rock solid. 
and he will give us all that we need, not, not what we want many times, not on our timetable, but he will give exactly what we need when he's ready to give it. I'd like to ask the band to come up. We're going to wrap up in a few moments. And if you take the time, I'm going to pray, if you take the time just to finish completing the connection card, any next that you'd like to take. Actually, uh, I didn't really lay out any next steps for you, but if you have one to take, to something God's spoken to you about this morning, you could just write it in there, and uh, we'll you know, make a commitment to follow through on that before God as you drop it in the offering when it comes by. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. The way that you work is amazing. And we see your hand in history, and then we see your hand in our own lives, and you're, you're completely consistent and faithful in the way you love us and care for us. God, we, we honor your holy name, and we ask you for the strength and power to take the steps that you have laid on our heart to please you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Hoping to find the child of heaven 